Amen. Good morning, King's Cross. Welcome to this incredibly warm fall morning. Glad that you're here. Hope none of you are too hot on this fall morning. As we gather together, uh, in all seriousness, we are uh, in just... Uh, overjoyed to be able to gather and assemble together in one service, uh, anticipating and trusting the Lord will provide for us uh, that at one day uh, in the Lord willing near future, uh, there will be a sanctuary here where we can do this uh, together in one service every week, uh, asking and trusting and believing he will provide. As for this morning, we continue following Jesus toward the cross as recorded in Matthew's gospel account. Last week, we looked at and studied and saw him staggering in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was sweating great drops of blood, anticipating drinking the wrath of God Almighty as he went to the cross. This week, we see him begin to enter and be tried by the Jewish authorities. And over the next few weeks, we will see him tried by Pilate as the Roman authority. But as we continue to follow King Jesus on his way to the cross, I'm asking and reminding you to have two great thoughts dominating your mind as you look and, and study and learn what it is that Christ Jesus himself went through. Thought number one that I want you to have as we go through the scriptures together following Christ to the cross is this is what we deserve. This is what we deserve. We are sinners. We are not perfect. Jesus has to suffer what he suffered in order to save sinners like us, though he had no sin of his own. He did not deserve that which we're reading and studying. He did not deserve to go through that. We deserve that. So as you study, as you watch, as we lean in, continue to have that thought, this is what we deserve. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteous of God. That's thought number one. This is what we deserve. Thought number two, this is how much God loves us. This is what we deserve, but also be thinking this is how much God loves us. Romans 5, 8, for God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our worst, when we were deserving that which we're watching him suffer, that's when he chose to give his life for us. It's his joyful love, even as we just sang, that motivated all that we will see as we follow him to the cross. It's, he adds the joy set before him, he endured the cross. His joy because of his love for sinners like us is what motivated him to persevere even through such suffering. You could summarize it in this way, I deserve this, but he loved me enough to suffer what I deserve so that I might enjoy all that he earned. This is the good news of the gospel. He loved me enough to suffer all that I deserve that I might enjoy all that he earned. This great exchange in the gospel, the gospel is such good news. So think about this as we see our king betrayed, arrested, and tried in fulfillment of the scriptures. Big idea this morning, the king's march to the cross should lead us to affectionate submission to his sovereign word. The king's march to the cross should lead us to affectionate submission to his sovereign word. I want to give you three encouragements that I believe will help you this morning to have affectionate submission for his word. Let's pray and ask for his help. One more time. Father, we come to you through Jesus Christ, our resurrected and reigning Lord, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I come asking, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O our great King. And as plenty of others have prayed, we even pray now together, teach us what we know not, give us what we have not, and make us what we are not for the glory of our good King, Jesus. And in his name we pray, amen. Three encouragements for you this morning to stir your affections and your submission to his sovereign word. Encouragement number one, the good king's control is our comfort. The good king's control is our comfort. First, we're going to see Judas's betrayal. 
Christ has made it clear as we've studied and walked through this gospel account, this betrayal is coming. He knows that it's coming. He knows Judas will betray him. And now is the time when it happens. Again, look at verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer, identified as such, the betrayer, had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Matthew again emphasizes to us, Judas is one of the 12. This is one who spent the last three years, almost every hour of the last three years of his life with Christ Jesus discipling him, teaching him, pouring into him, doing miracles in front of him, loving and serving him. He's one of the 12. He's one of the beloved whom Christ has served. This betrayal is a painful betrayal because now Judas has betrayed Christ, the one who so served him, so loved him, so poured into him, that he's now united with the political and religious leaders of Israel against Jesus and brings this Jewish police uh, squad to seize him, a Jewish SWAT team, if you will, to arrest and seize him. And did you notice how he betrayed him? With a kiss. Now, this was a formal greeting, not an informal one. So if you saw a friend, again, even thinking about today, because uh, grown men don't kiss each other as a formal greeting in our culture, but this was very common for a formal greeting in the ancient culture. So maybe in our day, it's, you would come up with an informal greeting to a friend and dap them up and give them a bro hug. But if you're having a formal interaction, there's going to be kind of more of this polite, clear, professional-like handshake. Judas gives the one that's more formal, more professional, reaches out, if you will, and shakes his hand and with the other hand stabs him in the back with a kiss, a sign of formal greeting, not like one he was close to or knew closely. But notice what Jesus said to him. Friend, do what you came to do. Jesus is not in the least bit caught off guard. He's not panicked. He's not surprised. He predicted this would happen just as it has happened back in verse 26. He knew it was Judas who would betray him, and he knew Judas would betray him while he was in the Garden of Gethsemane because he knew Judas knew where he was, and this was a good time in the middle of the night to come and arrest him. And so what we see and we've continued to see throughout this process as Christ marches towards Calvary is this Jesus, not Judas, who's running things even in the hour of his betrayal. Christ is the one in control, not Judas. Even when Christ is being betrayed, Christ has determined it is time to head toward Calvary. Judas might be thinking, my plan is working perfectly for now. But it is Jesus who's in charge of this moment and indeed every other moment. And again, we see that even as Christ, when, he's, when he responds and says, friend, do what you're here to do, he uses the, the formal word for friend, not the affectionate word for a close friend. He knows, no, 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 this handshake you're giving me, this formal handshake you're giving me, this formal kiss that you're giving me is because you're merely a formal friend to me. You're not an actual, a beloved friend to me. Friend, former one, acquaintance, one who my path has crossed with, but not who one who loves me. Do what you came to do. But again, Jesus, not Judas, is in charge of the situation and working all of this out according to his plan of redemption. We could say it like this, what Judas meant for evil, Jesus meant for good. This betrayal reminds us very much, does it not, of Joseph's betrayal of his brothers in Genesis chapter 50. Perhaps you remember the story. Joseph was kind of the runt child of the brothers. 
But he started having dreams that he was going to reign and rule over them and telling them, hey, guess what I dreamed about last night? His brothers weren't having it. So they duped him. They took him out. They left him in a hole for dead. But he was captured, and God's providence ended up working for Pharaoh, being thrown in prison, but working himself up, having such favor that he ended up becoming Pharaoh's right-hand man. And then during a great famine, his wisdom working with and for Pharaoh provided for all kinds of people who were hungry and such that his brothers even showed up needing food and now he was in a position of power and authority to bless them and give them food. They didn't even recognize their brother whom they thought was dead. After some back and forth without him revealing his identity, he kind of had these interactions to make sure his father was okay. He found out that his father was okay and then ended up revealing his identity to them and moving the family to Egypt to take care of them. But when the father died, when Jacob died, the brothers were nervous. And they asked Joseph, could we just be your servant? Because their word, oh no, he's going to kill us now. He has authority. He's going to kill us. We betrayed him. He's going to kill us. But Joseph's reply is a beautiful parallel of what we see happening between Jesus and Judas. Joseph, speaking to his brothers in Genesis 50, says this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Jesus Christ, our King, displays calmness in the face of betrayal because he knows what Judas meant for evil, God meant for good, the supreme good, in fact, namely redemption and salvation for the nations, for all those who would repent and believe and have life in Christ. He's understanding, no, it's through this betrayal, Judas. You mean it for evil. God means it for good. He's going to save the nations through this, even this betrayal. So Christ is not nervous. He's not hiding. He's not defensive. He's not resisting. He is confident in his father's plan revealed in the word. Even remember last week as we looked at him in Gethsemane, even when he was in agony and suffering depression unto death, even then he wasn't sinfully anxious, saying, Father, let this cup pass for me, not my will, but yours be done. Even on the way to the cross, even when he's betrayed by Judas, King Jesus is in control. This ought to bring us great comfort. Christ's confidence, even in the face of wicked betrayal, should calm us even in the midst of a broken world where terrorists like Hamas launch surprise attacks on Israel on Shabbat or on the Sabbath. Even in these kinds of moments, we understand no wicked king, no wicked ruler, no wicked man can do anything to thwart my God's plans. Christ doesn't panic when evil people do evil things. There's not one enemy of God who can alter God's sovereign rule in the least bit. His redemptive purposes are never threatened. Therefore, followers of King Jesus, no matter what we go through, there should be a calmness that sets us apart because we know that our king is in control and he's a good king. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, the author of Hebrews says. And this is why the apostle Paul tells us, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the grace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Encouragement number one, the good king's sovereign control is our comfort. Friend, you you can find comfort in his control. Second encouragement, the good king's word is our weapon. The good king's word is our weapon. His control brings us a calmness and a comfort, but his word is the weapon we fight with. Now, one of our great problems as sinners It's just like the disciples in our text are today. We're prone to focus on our present circumstances and forget our good king's control. 
And when we focus on our circumstances rather than our calm and confident Christ, we inevitably report, uh, resort to our own schemes and strategies, which often contradict Christ's strategies. So we say, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to pay attention to my sovereign king and find comfort in his control and reign and rule. I'm going to look at my circumstances such that my mind begins to drift from my king to my circumstances. And when I see these circumstances, suddenly I come up with my own strategies to try to fix these circumstances. We see this with Peter. Oh, our brother Peter, again and again and again. But we see it in this moment because he uses the wrong weapon. So there's a fight happening. There is a war going on. Spiritual battle is legit. So it's not that we're cowards and we shrink back from war. We just got to use the right weapon where our brother Peter does not use the right weapon. Verse 51, behold, one of those who were with Jesus, Luke tells us it was Peter, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions, which uh, a legion of 6,000 soldiers, 12 legions of angels, so 72,000 angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Remember last week we looked at Peter promised that he wouldn't deny Jesus and was willing to die with him. And Peter's had a rough stretch as we've studied through Matthew. At one point rebuking Jesus outright that he would not die. And then Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Like you're, you're not thinking according to the will of God. But at this point, when Christ is going to die, Peter's like, okay, bump it. Even if everybody else abandons you, I'll die with you. So at this point, Peter's like, look, I'm putting my money where my mouth is. Let me get this dagger out. And we take my man's ear off. Peter's passionate, if nothing else. <clears throat> he goes all in. So he, he goes all in wonderfully. It's wonderful. When it's bad, it's real bad. <laughs> in this moment, he cuts off this soldier's ear. But instead of Jesus affirming him for trying to come to Christ's defense, what does Jesus do? He rebukes him. Peter. If you start swinging the sword, we're all going to die right here in a sword fight. But that's not the plan. I'm not ushering my kingdom in. I'm not bringing in redemption through physical force. That's not how King, like that, that's how the Jews wanted him to show up, to reign and rule politically and to, impact, to overthrow things with physical force. Christ's like, that's not how my kingdom advances. You're using the wrong kind of weapon. But also notice his confidence. Like Peter, don't you understand at this point, I'm God's son? I could ask my father to send 72,000 warring angels. That'd be 6,000 apiece for all 12 of us. Not count Judas because he's betrayed, but counting Christ. And the, I, we all could have 6,000 warring angels apiece if I wanted to. Christ at any moment could have done something else but go to the cross. At any moment, he could have said, I'm sick of your little puny attacks. I will end you right now. But he didn't. That's not what he did. And even think about Peter in this moment. It's almost like Christ looks at Peter and is like, Peter, if I needed help, I wouldn't turn to a redneck fisherman with a fancy knife. <laughs> like, like, I have resources. I don't have to fight like little humans fight. I'm the cosmic king of the universe. I have soldiers and weapons you know nothing about. I don't need to turn to human strategies. Why doesn't Jesus fight? Why doesn't he gather those 72,000 angels, warring angels that could have destroyed all of his enemies? And why does he not do that? Verse 54, look at it again. How then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? No, because Psalm 22 has got to be fulfilled. Isaiah 53 must be fulfilled. Zechariah 12 and 13, among others, must be fulfilled. And our good and faithful God always keeps his word. It will be fulfilled. So Jesus, think about this, rebukes the one defending him, 
And according to Luke's account, heals his enemy's ear, picks that joint up and puts it back on. <laughs> like I, look, if nobody else in the room should start asking the question, wait a minute, who is this guy? At least that dude. Like from looking down at your ear to it's back on again. <laughs> it's, okay, wait a minute, who is this man? At least surely he's got some questions. But Christ at this point is not swinging a physical sword. He came to fulfill his father's will according to the scriptures. Christ Jesus in his incarnation is not about self-preservation, but self-sacrifice for the sake of redemption. John Stott in the cross of Christ said what dominated his mind was not the living, but the giving of his life. So Christ, in contrast to Peter, Peter used the wrong weapon. Christ used the right weapon, the word of God. While he's rebuking Peter for not understanding his actions according to the word, he then turns to the crowds and rebukes the crowds for not understanding the word. Verse 55, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. <laughs> Jesus is like, really? Y'all need a SWAT team to come get me? I've been in public teaching everything I'm teaching in private. You get the same message from me in public and private. And you're really bringing out soldiers to seize me in the middle of the night in secret as if I'm going to resist, as if I'm not in control. And then he swings his great weapon of choice against the crowds. No, but all of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So notice what Christ does. He rebukes the crowds and lets them know all of this is happening is happening to fill the scriptures. He's committed to obeying the will of God as re revealed in the word of God. And then notice in, at the end of verse 56, then all the disciples left him and fled. So he rebukes Peter, you're not thinking according to the scriptures. He rebukes the crowd, you're not thinking in accordance to the scriptures. However, all of you are fulfilling the scriptures because I'm fulfilling the scriptures. And then the disciples abandon him just like he told us they would a while ago. His word always gets kept because he's the sovereign king. The disciples forget their promise to die with him. We'll all die with you, they said. Just last week in our study, they all abandoned him in this moment just like he said, fulfilling his word. So again, friends, Jesus is not one to panic because he knows the will of his father as recorded in the scriptures. He's confident because of his weapon. You're not afraid of an enemy with a sword of metal when you have the sword of the spirit that can pierce any hard heart should you want it to. Christ understands, no, you're using a sword made of metal. I'm using a sword of the spirit that can penetrate and transform and change any human heart. And I can do that anytime I want to because I'm the sovereign king. Now there's much for us to learn here. Think about this. If Christ didn't need his disciples' help or protection then, well, friends, he doesn't need our help or protection now. If he didn't need his disciples to protect him from the cross, he doesn't need us to protect him from the culture. We don't need to edit his word to make it more palatable to people. We just need to be faithfully, graciously proclaiming what he has said because the power is in the word, not in our presentation of the word. He does not need us to defend him. He does not need us to defend his word. I love what Spurgeon said, how I defend the Bible, the same way I defend a lion, open the cage and let him out. Christ is totally confident in his sovereign plan as revealed in his inspired word. This is the right weapon to use even in our moment. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Jesus was confident 
because he was fulfilling God's word, because he knew God's word, he studied God's word, he memorized God's word, he meditated on God's word. The question is, do you? If the Son of God needed the word of God to fulfill the will of God, don't you think you probably will too? In our cultural moment, are you spending more time on social media formed by the world or on your knees with your Bible open formed by the word? Who has more control over your mind based on how much time you spend in it? Cultural world, social media, or the Bible? Do you know the scriptures? Is your heart anxious? It may very well be connected to you. You don't know the scriptures. Is your heart full of bitterness and anger and rage? You don't know the scriptures. Do you feel like everything's out of control and nothing's going to go right? You don't know the scriptures. The weapon is the word. If Christ needed his Bible, so do you. If the very son of God who had no sin meditated and relied on the word of God to be his weapon of choice, surely you need that same weapon. Men, let me talk to you for just a second. Do you need to be more equipped by the word? Well, then come to our men's retreat this Friday and Saturday here at the church. We're not even traveling to make it easy. Garrett Kale's going to come, author of, of the book Pure in Heart. He'll be sharing a powerful testimony on Friday night, and then Saturday morning he's going to be talking to us about holiness. And then on Sunday morning he's going to preach, and he's going to preach about uh, the hope we have, the eternal hope we have uh, for glory. This is a chance, if you're a man, to gather and say, look, I want to have a good time with the fellas. I'm going to eat some great food with the fellas, but I want to learn the word. I want to know what it's like to be faithful and to be a man of holiness and purity in this time, according to the scriptures. Men, come join us. We'll provide some good books for you, some good fun, uh, and, and be able to gather together and learn and study the word and fellowship. Think even in that great passage on spiritual warfare. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 Every weapon he lists is a defensive weapon, a protection weapon, except for one. Which is that one? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Ephesians 6, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, defensive weapon, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. He's attacking. Take the helmet of salvation, protect your mind, your head, and the sword of the Spirit, which is what, Paul? Which is the Word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And then Paul says, and also for me that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 10? Our battle, weapon, why do we need the word? For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The word of God, the good king's word is our weapon, and it's undefeated. We must use the word in our battles against the flesh, against Satan, and against this broken world. So let us study the word, meditate on the word, pray through the word, memorize the word, indeed hide the word in our heart, and indeed share it with others. Third encouragement. The good king's experiences set our expectations. The good king's experiences set our expectations. Jesus now arrested goes to a trial of sorts. There's more details than I can discuss in this series about how all the gospels paint the big picture of Jesus' arrest and trials. None of the four gospels have all the details, but instead, instead highlight certain parts of these trials for the purpose of which those writers are writing. But what I want you to see more broadly is how the king is treated on these trials. I want you to think back to my opening challenge. That's what I deserved. That's how much he loves me. 
So even as we see him on these trials, keep those thoughts at the forefront of your mind. That should have been you and I. That's what we deserve for our sin. He doesn't deserve it. He was sinless, but he loved you and I enough to be mistreated, to be on trial, to be judged even by wicked men. Verse 57, then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So what do we have? We got a sham trial of sorts happening in the middle of the night. There's at least a quorum of the Sanhedrin plus Caiaphas, the high priest. Peter's following along from a distance. He's still not abandoning his Lord yet. So he's kind of staying back at a distance, staying safe, but he's watching, he's following, he's seeing what's going on. I imagine he's still convinced that he won't betray Jesus, that he'll stay with him to death. We'll see more about that in the future, Lord willing. But suddenly this trial, they start bringing forth witnesses to try to find Jesus guilty of something. They want him dead, so they need to find some kind of evidence in order to execute him. Rome would allow the Jewish people to, to rule over their people, but Rome kept the power of the death penalty so that Rome had ultimate power. So they had to put together a trial that found enough evidence to convince Rome, we found enough evidence to kill this man. So that's what they're doing in this secret trial in the middle of the night, trying to find a witness. Can anybody find something to call him guilty such that we can kill him? So the Sanhedrin is running this, this scam trial, bringing all these witnesses, nothing good coming out. But finally, two come forward that they think they can turn into a case, even if it's through um, misquotation and misrepresentation of something Christ said. They said, hey, this man said he could destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. We look back to John chapter 2 to see what Jesus actually said. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and when you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So notice Jesus said they would destroy this temple and he would raise it up in three days. When they come to this sham trial, they said he said he could destroy the temple and then raise it up in three days. So they misquote, misarrange it, and Christ himself wasn't even talking about the physical temple per se at this point. He was talking about his own body. So he said something that was true. Now, if Christ had said what they're claiming he had said, then they did indeed, according to the law, have a reason to put him to death. So the high priest stood up and said, have you no, verse 62, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent, fulfilling Isaiah 53, 7. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you'll see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven in fulfillment of Daniel 7, 13. Then the high priest tore his robes, which actually would have been illegal, and said, he's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What happens in this moment? Christ in this moment affirms he's not only the human Messiah they were looking for, but he's the divine kingly son of man mentioned in Daniel 7, 13, who sits at the right hand of God in fulfillment of Psalm 110, 1-2, with all authority to reign over all the earth. He's claiming to be the judge who sits at the right hand of God. If he's lying, then according to Jewish law, he indeed does deserve death. But if he's telling the truth, 
then they have the judge of all the earth on trial. And that should be a terrifying thought. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. They are talking about the king of kings. They're talking about the one through whom they were knitted together in their mother's womb. They are judging God. Friends, please see the arrogance behind this sin. How arrogant is it for us as God's creation to judge God the creator? This is the root of all human rebellion. We think we know better than God, and so we place ourselves on the judgment seat and judge God from our vantage point. God created us in his image to reflect him. Because of our sin, we try to create him in our image and evaluate how well he reflects us. This is the essence of sin. When the creation says to the creator, let me see what I think about you as a creator. You're not the judge. Your evaluation of the creator means nothing if he's the creator and you're the creation. You don't have the rightful place to make that declaration. And yet this is what they do even in this moment. Let us all flee from this posture and instead bow before the king and righteous judge. Because when you start deciding, I will judge God, this goes to an ugly place. Look at verse 67. Then they spit on his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Luke lets us know that Jesus was blindfolded as they beat him. And they told him to prophesy who was doing it. So they're slapping him, saying, if you've got this messianic power you claim to have, well, then you ought to be able to tell us who's slapping you, even though you're blindfolded, who's slapping you as they beat him and mock him in his power. The great and awful irony is that Jesus could have told them not only their names, but how many hairs they had on their head and where they would spend eternity in judgment because of his judgment. But again, I ask the question, why? Why is Christ going through this? This is the son of God getting beaten and mocked as if he can't call 72,000 angels to end the, the lives of these people mocking him. Why is he going through this? The author of Hebrews says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Again, friends, Jesus' experience should shape our expectations. Did Christ not teach in Matthew 10, 24, disciples not above his teacher, a servant not above his master? Did he not teach in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? Brothers and sisters, sometimes we go through because he's disciplining us and he's refining us. He's showing us sin because he means to purify us and grow us and conform us to the image of Christ. So sometimes we're going through difficulties because we need to go through difficulties to become who God's calling us to be. Sometimes we go through difficulties because the world hates us like it hated our king. Sometimes we go through difficulties because Satan attacks us because we belong to King Jesus. Either way, though, our Savior's march to the cross ought to shape our expectations. We should expect in this life to be strangers and aliens in our world. We don't fit in. 
Stop trying to be a Christian who's so cool you fit in everywhere. It ain't going to work. Christ didn't do that. They crucified him. We will not fit in. We are strangers and aliens in this place. We should expect to be moral minorities. We should expect to have moral views that the world is offended by. Our views will be seen as offensive. We should expect to be uh, people to be offended by God's word. We are the aroma of death to some, to those who are perishing. We are the aroma of life to those who are being saved. We should even expect that some will persecute us, socially at minimum, but like our brothers and sisters throughout the world, perhaps physically even unto death. His experience shapes our expectations. Now, I told you I had three encouragements. How is this an encouragement? Do you feel encouraged? Cheer up, it could get worse. <laughs> How is this an encouragement? That if our king suffered, we ought to expect we too will suffer. If we follow King Jesus and the way he brought forth redemption was through suffering, we should expect to suffer. How is that encouraging? Because even though we suffer with him now, eventually we will also rise victorious with him. John 16, 33, even in this moment in John's gospel, he said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulations, but take heart, I've overcome the world. The apostle John says, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Paul makes it clear, Romans 8, 5, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so Paul continues, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered? No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How did he love us? By marching to Calvary and dying on the cross. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we take up our crosses and die with him, brothers and sisters, we're going to get up out of death with him too. That's why this is an encouragement. His experience shapes our expectations so we understand suffering doesn't mean God is not with us. Often it means he's uniquely with us and he's telling us, I'm taking you somewhere and it's going to be worth it. And so that's an encouragement to our souls, understanding, no, this is what I ought to be expecting. Good Friday might often be our experience in this life. Oh, but for the follower of Christ, Sunday morning is always coming. As we follow Jesus to his cross, let us submit to his word with affection and humility, remembering and experiencing and being encouraged by the fact that the good king's control is our comfort. The good king's word is our weapon. And the good king's experience set our expectations. And let us remember, we deserve to suffer and die, not him. But he loved us so much, he suffered and died for us. And praise God, death could not hold him. And therefore, death cannot hold us. Let's close in prayer.